Well, perhaps you've heard about that old um, popular Hindu story. It's sort of like a parable. It's been around for actually a couple hundred years now. And it is often told in philosophy classes or in particularly classes on comparative religions where you're kind of looking at all the major religions of the world. And it goes something like this. A handful of people are blindfolded and they're walked blindfolded to an elephant and the elephant is standing there before them. And what they're asked to do is to describe what they are experiencing simply by touching the elephant and their interactions with it. And so uh, one of these blindfolded people feels the elephant's leg, and it says, oh, this is a tree. This is a tree trunk. Another feels the, the, the trunk of the elephant, and it says, I'm not sure, but, I'm, but I think this is a snake. A third feels the tail of the elephant and says, this is a rope. And then a fourth one walks up to the side or the back of the elephant and kind of pushes on it, and it is so rock solid, the person says, this has to be a wall. And then they remove everyone's blindfolds, and everyone sees that it's an elephant. It's really none of the things that they thought it was. And the point that is often made in these philosophy or comparative religion classes is that, hey, that's kind of like the religions of the world. That's kind of like religious people. We're all kind of groping blindly. One experiences something and says, God is like this. And another experiences another part of the elephant and says, no, you're wrong. God is like this. But no one sees the whole picture objectively. No one is completely accurate. And I would suggest to you that the tragic conclusion that is often made and often dogmatically presented to unsuspecting students is, hey, since we're all kind of groping around blindly here trying to describe our objective experience of God, none of us is right. Nobody really knows what God is like. All religions are wrong, or at least they're incomplete. Now, lest you think I'm exaggerating on that, that is precisely what I was taught in seminary years ago in a study of comparative religions. That exact story, that exact parable, in a school that at that time was very liberal theologically, but has since then moved back to more biblical roots. It is a common teaching. And you know what? It fits with the spirit of this age, does it not? Because we live in a world where relativism is at an all-time high in popularity. We live in a world where people say, hey, whatever you believe is fine, as long as you're sincere about it, as long as it helps get you through the days and the nights of life, as long as it brings you some comfort, hey, it's true for you, so celebrate that. 
Now, of course, the problem with that analogy is it doesn't matter how much I believe that the leg of that elephant is a tree. It doesn't matter how sincere I am in that belief. It is not a tree. I can think it all day long. I can feel it. I can convince myself it's true. But no matter how much I insist that the trunk of the elephant is a snake, it is not a snake. But the elephant is very real nonetheless. And so Christianity makes the bold declaration that there is such a thing as objective truth and that that truth can be known. And if you're on a search today for God, if in your own life you're on a journey of trying to figure out what all this religious chaos is about, I, I want to be as clear as I can be that Christianity declares there is such a thing as true truth. Not all truth is subjective. And because there is something called objective truth, it by definition is narrow. You know, people try to cozy up to Jesus and make friends with Jesus and Many times they, they really want nothing to do with them. They just know that they'll have egg on their face and people won't like them if, if they say bad things about Jesus. But they're not really listening to Jesus. Jesus made audacious claims that are very exclusive. In John 14, verse six, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In today's culture, are you kidding? Jesus, that is so offensive because it's so exclusive. Now, if Jesus had said it a little differently, he would be heroic. If he had said, I'm one way or I'm a way, but there are many others. Some of you may come to God through me. Others may come through some other means. He would be hailed as a hero. But I want to be clear if you're taking the Bible seriously, and if you're taking Jesus seriously, you have to admit, wow, the message is rather narrow. It's rather exclusive. And the followers of Jesus certainly understood that to be true. For instance, the apostle Peter, one of his early main leaders, said to a group of leaders among the Jewish people in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we must be saved. Now, why did Peter and why do we today assert that Jesus Christ stands unique? and that he has no serious competitor and no equal. Well, I wanna explore a passage of scripture today that I think will shed some light on that and give us a surprising insight from the life of Jesus. So if you have a Bible uh, with you or one available or maybe on your device, find Luke chapter nine. By the way, this passage we're gonna read is found in three of the four Gospels. It's found in what we call the Synoptic Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels because they kind of see the story of Jesus in a very similar way. If you compare the stories, it's called the transfiguration. And the words are a little bit different, but the gist of the story is very much the same. Here's what happens. Jesus takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on to a mountain. They go on this journey together, and it must have been a mind blower. I'm picking up here in verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. No matter how you slice it, this must have been a mind-blowing experience. I mean, come on. Moses had left the planet 1,500 years ago from that point. Elijah had left planet Earth 800 years before this. And now, now, they're appearing on top of this mountain with Jesus. What could this possibly mean? Always at Grace, we're trying to help followers of Jesus become better at following because that's the journey we're all on. We all wanna be better followers, better disciples of Jesus. So here's a little tip for you that's very important. Whenever you're reading the Bible, context is key. You always, you never wanna take any passage just in isolation. You always wanna check out what's going on around it. So if you read what happened just before this, you'll find that eight days before this transfiguration event, Jesus had a crucial conversation with his followers. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? And so they answered. And they said, well, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets from long ago. But Jesus said, what about, what about you guys? How, what's your thinking on this? You've been following me now for a while. What's your assessment? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You can read that just a few verses before the passage we're looking at today. And that word Christ, of course, means the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the guy we've been waiting for all these years. And now, eight days later from that conversation, it's like Jesus is taking them into a deeper revelation of who he is. Hey, all Christ followers listening right now, online at Saratoga, Half Moon, Latham, wherever you are as you're listening to this, I wanna tell you something. When you start following Jesus, the reason it never gets old, the reason it never has to be dull is because he always wants to take us into a deeper revelation. It doesn't mean God's giving more revelation in terms of scripture, but what it means is that as we read scripture, he, the Holy Spirit, is turning light bulbs on constantly if we have ears to hear. 
if we're sincere, if we want to know him in all of his profundity and depth, and if we want to follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love him that way, he will take you deeper. Trust me on that. So if your Christian life has become a little bit dull, let me ask you, are you going deeper? Because it's not dull if it's deep. If it's deep, it's not dull. And so if you're just kind of water skiing the Christian life, just kind of skimming over the surface, yeah, it probably is gonna get pretty dull. But God wants you to scuba dive. Some of you are snorkeling, and you're getting a little tired of just looking at coral and colored fish and all that stuff. Listen, God wants you to scuba dive. He wants to take you into the depths of who he is. I didn't plan to say any of that. That's just a total aside right there, okay? But here's the question. Here's the question I want to ask. And as you're reading your Bible again, we always want to try to learn together. You ought to ask questions. Why are Moses and Elijah appearing here? I mean, there are lots of other great characters in the Old Testament. Why these two dudes? I mean, why not Miriam or Ruth or Sarah or Rebecca? Why not Joshua or Abraham or David, for goodness sakes? Why these two people? I would suggest to you that these two specific guys are very significant in their appearance here. And I would suggest to you that the reason Moses is significant, because in any Jewish, any Orthodox Jewish person's mind, Moses is inseparable from the law, capital L. The law, meaning the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books in your Old Testament, referred to commonly as the law. It was the core scripture for all good Jewish people. It gave all of God's moral laws, all the civil laws, all the ceremonial laws, and guess what? It all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to Jesus. And one of the most exciting Bible studies you'll ever do is to study the Pentateuch and see how every book in the Pentateuch has some foreshadowing, some prefiguring, some clue to Jesus who was to come and be the fulfillment of that. And it's as though Moses is standing there up on the mountain and the message is all that you read in the law really makes no ultimate sense until it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But what about Elijah? I mean, there's a colorful character for you. I mean, read the stories about Elijah I mean, he was an incredible prophet. He wasn't the first prophet, to be sure, but he was the first in a long line of itinerant prophets. That word itinerant means they traveled around preaching their message. And he was the first of the itinerant prophets. And trust me, you'll get some value in reading the prophets. In fact, I would suggest that probably of all portions of the Bible right now, Americans might be most blessed and most challenged by reading some of the prophets, especially the minor prophets right now. 
because there's so many issues they grappled with that we need to grapple with as a nation. And Jesus, again, is the ultimate solution to all the problems. So Elijah is standing there on this Mount of Transfiguration, and it's like he's saying all that the Old Testament prophets stood for, all they had to say, hey, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So why Moses and Elijah and not just any two people? Their presence is bearing witness from history that the law and the prophets all find their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, did you know that Jesus himself said something powerful about that? If you read in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five of Matthew, verse 17, he, he, he said, do not think, do not think for a moment here that I've come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And again, that's powerful language. It's like, yes, I'm bringing a new covenant, but don't think that means the old covenant has nothing to say to you. I've not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them, to show you how they all pointed ultimately to me. That's why Moses and Elijah are there. Now, as you read this story, let me just make this comment. It seems to me, kind of chuckle at this, the disciples come off well, to be honest, they come off like bumbling idiots, don't they? I mean, do you ever get that impression when you're reading through the Gospels? I, I get it. I, I feel that at times. It's like they're, they're always sticking their foot in their mouth. They're always doing something silly. Uh, and this is one of those moments. I'm looking here at verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Now, Jesus is praying. Why aren't they praying with him? Isn't that what disciples are supposed to do? Why? I mean, this is a highlight moment. This, this is going to make the greatest moments of all time with Jesus, and these guys are snoozing. That's, that's not real impressive. But suddenly, they are awakened, and they're staggered, honestly, by what they See, verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, if you read, if you compare this in the other synoptics, you'll see uh, he did not know what to say because he was so afraid or something like that. But here in Luke, he puts it like this. He did not know what he was saying. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that about Peter? In the Gospels, whenever he was confused, whenever he didn't understand something or didn't know what was really happening, he started talking. <laughs> Do you know any people like that? 
Are you a person like that? Oh, it's an interesting friend to have when they just start talking and just talk through moments. It's very interesting. Now, I don't know what's going through Peter's mind, and he's such a likable character, even though here he comes off a, a, a little crazy. I don't know what's going through his mind, but he, he kind of comes up with a goofy idea. Hey, I can, I can see a, let's make three booths, a Jesus booth, a Moses booth, an Elijah booth. We could sell tickets. I mean, we could get a tram up here, a gondola ride up the mountain to, to watch the three great guys in their booths and on and on. And it's kind of like, he wants them all to be on the same level. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it's like, let, hey, you th three great icons of the faith, let's just put you all here together. Verse 34 says, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen Listen to him. Please don't miss the importance of that. Moses and Elijah disappear. Now the father intervenes. And remember that discussion that happened eight days earlier? Who do people say I am? Peter said, you're the Christ of God. Good answer, Peter. But God's now taking them to a deeper revelation of the son. Yes, he's the anointed one. You're right about that. But Peter, James, and John, I want you to understand that he is far more than your conceptions of what the Messiah would be. So you better listen. Because in listening, you're going to go into an even deeper revelation of who he really is. Now, on your spiritual journey, I wanna tell you what's gonna happen. If it hasn't happened already, you're probably gonna have somebody at some point walk up to you and go, you know, I don't get you Christians. You make all these audacious claims about Jesus that Jesus never made for himself. For instance, you claim that Jesus is divine, but Jesus never claimed to be divine? How do you, how do you come off making statements like that about him? And, and when I've had that conversation, I smile real big. It's always good to smile. In fact, just smile right now. Just everybody, just smile. Come on. Get out of your bad mood. Just smile. It's, it's good to smile. It, it makes people think you're up to something. <laughs> and so I just smile at people who make statements like that. I go, you know, that's really interesting. Thank you for raising that question. I'm really shocked that you're not taking Jesus' statements more seriously. Have you really read him or have you just parroting what somebody else told you? Because if you really read Jesus, he made some compelling statements that any rational person has got to be scratching their head at because he sure seems to be claiming divinity. Here's just a quick sampling of them from John chapter eight. Now, we could go on way beyond this where he made statements like in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Boy, that's provocative. 
Or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But let's not even go there to those. Let's just look at a few of them right here. For instance, in John 8, 23. But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, now, now go with me here. If I meet you for the first time and I say, where are you from? And you say, Albany. I go, oh, you're from this earth, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, of course I am. Well, where are you from? I'm not of this earth. I'm from above. <laughs> Those are Jesus' exact words. I'm just asking you a question. What would you conclude about me? I think you'd be thinking, this guy just escaped from a lunatic asylum. He is deranged, but if you saw me do some miracles, you might do a double take and go, whoa, something's going on here. Or consider this statement just a few verses later in verse 42 of John chapter eight. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I am, am here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. What a statement. I came from God, and now I'm here. He sent me. Again, you'd be looking for the guys in the little white suits to pick me up. That is an audacious claim. But let's go a bit further. Verse 51, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I mean, what would you make of me? This guy's a lunatic or a liar or maybe? Verse 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am that's poor English grammar, but it's wonderful theology. You see, Abraham was the acknowledged father of the Jewish nation. He went back some 2,000 years, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, present tense. Now, let's suppose I say to you, do you know who Christopher Columbus is? And you go, oh, yeah, my teacher taught me. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And I say to you, you're absolutely right, but you know something? Before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, I was here. Do you think you'd go home and say to your spouse, you know, I met the nicest guy today. Oh, he, he was here before Columbus. No. You'd say, I met a complete nutcase. This guy needs serious psychiatric help. I can't believe he's roaming around out in public, unsupervised. Folks, Jesus made claims about himself that are audacious. And here's the point I want you to get. At some point in your journey, I'm telling this because I care, I, I don't... I don't know your age. I don't know what your story is. I, but I care about you. I'm telling you, at some point, you've got to face those claims. You cannot 
be neutral about Jesus. He doesn't allow it. At some point in your life, you have to answer, what am I gonna make of all this? Because the claims of Christ are just too dramatic, too grand, too terrific to just shrug your shoulders and say, who cares? He's either a liar, he's either deranged, a lunatic, or maybe he's exactly who he claims to be. So throughout history, other religious leaders have said, I will show you the way. Jesus said, I am the way. And throughout history, others have said, look, I'll help you find the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. You gotta grapple with those kind of statements. Some throughout history have said, look, I'll help you find a better life. Jesus said, I am the life. Some gurus have claimed, look, my teachings are gonna open a door for you. Jesus said, I am the door. Down through the centuries, some have claimed my principles will be like life-giving bread for your soul. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And some have said, look, look to me for guidance. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And some highly respected religious icons have said, I will help illuminate the way for you. Jesus said, I am the light. And all I'm asking you is, what are you doing with that? You say, well, I'm here, aren't I? You say, I'm listening, aren't I? You say, I care enough about it to, I, 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 I'm, I'm considering it today, bravo. But I simply need to assert again, there is no way around Jesus. Jesus himself said, you either gather with me or you scatter abroad. Boy, isn't that narrow? Isn't that exclusive? That's not groping around blindly. Everybody's got their own truth. Believe whatever you want. No, Jesus, he won't allow that. There is objective truth, and it can be known. And so his invitation to you today is profound. Jesus is not some dead sage with a few dusty old principles to pass along. He is the living Savior. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is our life. He is our hope. All is in Jesus Christ. And that's the one I'm proclaiming to you today. That's the one I've given my life to, to follow today and tomorrow and the next day and the next and throughout eternity. And that's the one I'm commending to you. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the prophets. He stands supreme, august, in a category all his own. No one else like Jesus. He's one of a kind. Now, now, as I close, I just, 
Because we live in such a religiously plural world. We live in such a relativistic world where, you, you sound, oh gosh, I sound like a raving lunatic this morning. But you're being lied to for hours every day. It's almost like for every hour that we, and I'm in this same world, I'm being lied to as well. I don't, I don't live up on a mountaintop in a monastery somewhere, okay? Every time, for every hour we listen to TV or a movie or so, it's almost like we need to spend an hour in Scripture just to dispel the lies we just got discipled with. That's, that's how intense this battle and this struggle really is. But here's what I want to say to you in closing. Anything you put on a level with Jesus is going to diminish the glory of Jesus. I'll never forget back in 2007, my family and I were on a sabbatical, and what a refreshing time. And we were visiting one of the uh, Italian cities, and there are so many, if you've been to Italy, you know there's so many glorious cathedrals and churches all around, and we were touring one particular uh, church, and a glorious nave and this sort of cathedral, and there was impressive statuary all around gold-laden tables. It was unbelievable art. And over the altar, I'll never forget it. I still, it's emblazoned in my mind, was, was the Virgin Mary, and then on one side of her, a little bit lower, was St. Peter, and on the other side was St. Paul. And the priest who gave us the tour was so impressive in the way he explained the history of everything. And, and at the end, very respectfully, very respectfully, I said, sir, because I'd been looking. I said, sir, where is Jesus? And he said, oh, he's over there. And he pointed to a dusty little chapel in a remote corner off the massive nave of the cathedral. He's in there. And I went over there, and there was a little statue of Jesus in a little chapel with about five or six seats in it. Anytime you raise anything, anyone, any saint, any person, any guru, on a level with Jesus, you diminish Jesus in some way. So what have you done with Jesus Christ? I would urge you to open up the scripture and every time you read it, look for Jesus in it. Look for Jesus in the word of God because every single book in the Bible prefigures or foreshadows or points to Jesus in some way. He is one of a kind. He is worth giving your life to. Amen? Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Father, thank you for this searing truth from your word. Oh, how it stops us in our tracks. We can't play around with this. We can't dally with it. Or We at our own peril put it off. So I pray that today, this very moment, would be a moment where you, God, God the Holy Spirit, would confront us with what we've done about Jesus. 
He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, he is the bread of life, he is the door, he is the good shepherd, he is the light of the world. Help us to face him today. And by your grace, may we open our lives to Jesus so you can take us deeper into the depths of who you are. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen.